We are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech, open debate, and anti-censorship in the vast wasteland that is the New World Order under the Biden administration. This is the backstory. It's backstory, it's a Friday, and it's gonna be a great show. We're gonna be informed by the great Mark Sabota coming up this hour. Is that right, Rod? We got Sabota from Roscoe? That's correct. Got a lot of Sabota. Yes, so we have a double Mark show. So the first Mark is Mark Sabota. Then the second hour is a Frosty Friday. Mark Frost, economist, Eagle Scout, prog rock drummer will be in the house. Mark Frost will be leaving Waffle House and come, I don't know if he's at Waffle House. Now, I know he's there. You've heard him talk about it, right, Rod? Of course, it's a good meal. No, but find out, we should find out if he's there. I, I would like him to do, if you could get him to do, maybe the company can cover it. If we can get Mark to do a broadcast from a Waffle House, would that be exciting, Rod? I think you and I can cover it, Lee. Yeah. There we go. It, particularly if Rod can meet him there. It'd be perfect. And we're taking your calls. 202-521-1320. This is Backstory. So, Rod, have you been following the goings-on with the warrant that was issued to let the FBI raid Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home? Um, not, not as much as in, you know, from the last time we spoke. Uh, you know, I'm guessing less, next week is what we're waiting for, next Thursday, to see what this judge does with the rest of the portion that, that's not redacted. Well, the ju- judge has said he's opened you some parts of it being released. But the Justice Department says that they don't want they they want heavy redactions. So the judge is letting them re- put their redactions in. The government is getting to redact that affidavit and the warrant that led to the raid. But what I'm hearing is it was about Russiagate. Are you hearing that? Yeah, you know we were rightly, and that's that's what the rumor is, and that's that shows how stupid this is because we all know that it, it's you know it was created by the Democrats and some Republicans, but mainly Democrats in the Clinton campaign, and it is a hoax. Donald Trump has no, he's not a spy for Putin or Russia, so this this would be embarrassing for it, for it to see an affidavit that they're still following this Russia gate. Okay, ready? I'm going to get make a guess here, and if you want to play along with me. This is a game called Think Like a Government Official. And if you want to play along, do you have a, a desk or something in front of you, Rod, a table maybe? Yeah, I do. Okay, this will help you think like a government official. Take that desk and beat your head against it so I can hear it audibly. No, don't do that. But you see what I'm saying? Your IQ goes down. So here's what I'm saying I think happened. I think they said... Russia, you've heard of them, has nuclear weapons. And if we get into a conflict with Russia, it could go nuclear, particularly if Dick Cheney or his progeny has their way. Do you see what I'm saying? 
So if it's about Russia, it has potential to go nuclear. Therefore, if Trump is hiding documents about Russia Gate, you see the, the logic? It's bad logic, I'm telling you. But do you see it? Oh, yeah. it's, it's horrible, but go, go ahead, continue. Well, I think this could be what, because why do they say it had anything to do with nuclear stuff? I'm telling you what I think. I think they'll eventually say, well, this is a nuclear, a potential danger for nuclear situation with Russia hacking and hurting Hillary Clinton's feelings and so on. I'm going to, we'll see, we'll see if there are convoluted explanation for why, because this obviously, if it's Russiagate, it's not what they've been saying. They've been saying for days there was a nuclear catastrophe awaiting if Donald Trump. And by the way, we'll talk more about that because we got Mark's vote on. I've heard that the government of Ukraine wants to use what's called a bunker buster bomb on the nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Have you heard that? I didn't hear the specifics of that bomb, but I just keep hearing day after day we've had Macron uh, call Zelensky and now Erdogan's trying to make peace between Putin and Zelensky all surrounding this uh, nuclear plant. Like, hey, you know, pretty much, you know, people are like, hey, you know, you know, chill out. This is this is a step too far for anybody. So you need to chill out, Zelensky. Well, the rumor is and again, it's just a rumor. The rumor at this point is that. Ukraine is ready to double down and use, again, what's called a bunker buster. Now, I'm no munitions expert. I'm no weapons expert in general. I'm no Scott Ritter. But I do not like the sound of bunker buster. That sounds like something you don't want hitting your nuclear power plant. Is is that fair to say, Rod, that if it busts a bunker, it probably would do damage to a nuclear plant, too? Yeah, and this is a, a very dangerous situation. And if let's say that let's hypothetically let's say Ukraine goes uh, forward with it and strikes this nuclear plant and causes a catastrophe, you already know that the media in lockstep are going to immediately blame Russia. But part of it worked because you heard we have another aid package for Ukraine, right? Joe Biden, our president, has committed another eight hundred billion dollars. They're saying to Ukraine. Or whoever gets the weapons. Did you hear that, Rod? It was eight hundred eighty million, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I said billion. Forgive me. Eight hundred eighty million. Now, what's interesting about that? Yeah, we're getting... yeah, go ahead, Rod. No, I was just saying we're getting there. I mean, he keeps giving away hundreds of millions, a billion here, a billion. We're getting close to something like that. Yes, but yeah, uh, so I misspoke. I said it's $880 million. It's nearly a billion dollars. And you heard about that bill the Democrats passed that they said is to fight inflation, right, Rod? Yeah, yeah. And then immediately once it's passed, they step back and say, no, 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 that's not what it's for. Right. They admit that nothing in the bill is going to affect inflation. They're saying long-term it will because the bill affects energy prices long-term. 
Have you ever gone to the gas station and said, fill her up, please? I'd like uh, fill her up with, uh, I'd like to pay future prices based on things the Biden administration is going to do later. But I'd like the gas now. You tried that, Rod? You can't do it. If you try it, it won't work. People are getting paid in actual money now. And so the problems that people are having paying their bills and buying a tank of gas exists now. But Biden's inflation fighter program is in the future. That's nice for the future. But in fact, let me say one thing. Broadly, the way the gas prices have gone down, apparently there was all kinds of manipulations that the Biden administration did to get the gas price to go down. But they can't do it much longer. In other words, they've done about as much as they can. And they suppressed the gas price for a month or so. But it's about to spring back, they say. And Rod, one possible prediction. Have you heard that the gas prices might really shoot up in the next month or so to higher than they, they, that $5 level they were at? Have you heard that? Well, yes, uh, I did hear that, Lee, and uh, Democrats voted for a, a gas tax increase. So, uh, you know, all that's going to take into effect sometime in September, I believe. And, uh, you know, I guess I guess the Biden administration is just going to say, well, we gave you guys a summer break. You should be grateful. Yes. And uh, I'll point out again, once again, I'll just say just in time for the election. The Biden administration, with all these kick the can down the road policies, often backs himself in his stuff that is going to be easy to predict politically disastrous. Also, another topic we talk about on the show frequently, the southern border. Did you see the the footage yesterday? There was like 1,700 people, nearly 2,000 people on the border at one place, just one place. Did you see that footage, Rod? Yes, I saw that footage, Lee, and it's, uh, it's, just, it's just madness. And, um, you know, I, I really don't know what it's how this is going to be fixed. Uh, it, you know, let's say uh, once the, the Republicans and whoever wins the next election, are they going to commit to uh, deporting some of these uh, a good amount of these people? Because a good amount of these people are uh, have some type of criminal record. I'm not saying all, but there's just a decent amount of these people who have criminal record who have been deported multiple times, and uh, call, it can cause a, a danger to people here in America. And uh, now, now I love having Ian Shelley on. And I'm not saying anything that I want to be insulting in any way. So I'll say this sensitively. When Ian Schilling was on, he talked about, remember, a thousand people a week coming across the channel? Remember that, Rod? Yeah. So let me just say, if Ian Schilling were here, I would ask him, what's wrong with you limey wussies? Now, that wouldn't be offensive, I don't think. But... Seriously, in England, they get bothered by a thousand people a week. We get at one rest stop that Fox happens to have a camera at. We get nearly 2,000 people a day. Do you see the difference, Rod? Big difference, Lee, big difference. Now, 
feel free to get Ian Schilling on next week for the topic is Limey Wussies. You bear that message, Rod. Go ahead. That'll be a fun producing job for you. So let's take a short break, Rod. And our friend Mark Sloboda, straight out of Moscow, from Moscow, Russia. Mark Sloboda, on with us next after a short break on the backstory. back on the backstory and we are on the radio on 105.5 fm am 1390 in washington dc the capital of the empire of lies joining us now we're honored and pleased to have with us a great friend of the show an acknowledged expert in all things russian and ukrainian the great geopolitical analyst mark sloboda hey mark how you doing Lee, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory. Well, it's always great to have you, Mark. And before we talk about some of the issues, we've got a lot of stuff going on. And we want to talk to you about the situation on the ground. And and but we'll 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 do that in a second. I want to get your general sense because Erdogan from Turkey, the leader of Turkey or Turkey, it's depending if you're old school or not. Erdogan recently had a meeting with Zelensky. He met with, he's been meeting with Trump too over the the past few weeks and meeting with, forgive me, with Putin himself. Erdogan's been meeting with Putin. But this, a couple of days ago, he took a meeting to Ukraine, but not to Kiev. Now, that's, that's correct, right? Yes. Uh, he met... Uh, with the um, leader of the regime, Zelensky, there, as well as with the UN Secretary General Gutierrez. Um, They met in Lvov and then in Odessa, where the primary discussion was um, uh, partially on the the, um, grain transit deals, uh, which Turkey helped broker, but also um, between Gutierrez and Zelensky, at least, discussions of the Kiev regime's uh, attacks on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Now, I heard Alice Mercoris talking earlier. He made a big deal of the fact that the meeting was not in Kiev. It was, in, as you're saying, Lviv. And normally, a, a high-level meeting with the leaders would be in the capital. Do you make it, do you take that as an omen that the meeting wasn't there at all, Mark? No, I don't think that's a big deal. Yeah, no, I, I wondered. Yeah, no, I mean, they met uh, they, they, they met in Lvov, they met in Odessa, and Odessa primarily because that is where, you know, the grain, the majority of the grain is departing, um, of the Ukrainian grain is departing Kiev from the port there. So it, it makes symbolic sense. Yes, and I think it's a tendency because very little factual information comes from the Ukrainian regime that people try to read into omens, like what kind of sweater he was wearing. Maybe that's saying a signal. But I agree. 
I, I don't I, think it's as far as I know, Zelensky hasn't changed his shirt in months, so he seems to be still wearing the same fob military camo uh, khaki green. He also seems to have been inspired by my, Miami Vice in that he likes stubble. He seems to like a beard stubble. He thinks it makes him look tough, I think. It's, I have to admit, um, I'm still, I mean, you can find the, plenty of the videos online. I can never really uh, shake the image of Zelensky playing the piano with his penis uh, during a comedy skit. And, you know, that's the kind of things that are stuck in Russians' minds when, when they think of Zelensky. And, of course, I don't want to start a rumor, but I'm going to, that there's video of Zelensky playing piano with someone else's penis, which is even more disturbing. So, Mark, okay, when we talk about <laughs> Well, I just made it up. So, but but feel free to get that going on Ukrainian Telegram channels. Say you heard on Sputnik. Credit me. That's fine. Now, Mark, when we talked about Erdogan before, you you mentioned you don't particularly like him, right? I I have respect for him as a cunning beast, but um, you know, any country that you know. Uh, uh, literally arms and supports Al Qaeda. No, I, I, I can't find any great love in my heart for Erdogan. Well, that's what, what I was going to ask is, is because I got that impression before that you don't care for Erdogan. But why don't you? What, what are your feelings about Erdogan? In some, uh, he's an Islamist. I mean, he is a a that is his political uh, spectrum, um, which um, he is. You know the. The principal actor, uh, even more so than the United States in many ways, that has been supporting uh, the jihadists, the Al Qaeda, the ISIS, um, you know, and and all the other th- thirty-one flavors of jihad that were waged on Syria, uh, you know, since two thousand eleven, and Turkey still occupies large swaths of Syria. Just this week. Uh, several uh, Syrian um, uh, soldiers were killed in Syria by a Turkish airstrike. And uh, Russians can't really forget that the Russian ambassador uh, to Turkey was assassinated uh, by an Islamist that Erdogan then let out of prison, and that Erdogan shot down a Russian plane on the Turkish-Syrian border uh, several you know, years ago, um, Turkey still occupies a great swath of North Syria. Turkey supplies the regime in Kiev with Bayraktar combat drones. And it's fair to say that every Russian soldier that has died in Syria has, uh, you know, uh, Erdogan, at least some of their blood is on Erdogan's hands. So, no, I don't like him. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great summary, Mark. Now, this meeting he had with Zelensky, do you think Zelensky got anything? Because there were no, you know, anyone was expecting Erdogan and Zelensky to meet and Erdogan to stand up there and say, I now support Ukraine in the conflict. Or to say Russia needs to stop this was sadly let down because Erdogan, I, I don't see Zelensky got anything of Erdogan in this meeting. Do you? Uh, He wanted a photo op with Erdogan, which he said as a signal of great Turkish support, which 
Um, well, it's Erdogan. So, you know, he is supplying uh, Ukraine with drones, combat drones, uh, at the same time that he is conducting a very intensive trade with Russia, uh, including uh, energy, but not only, you know, not limited to energy. So, um, I mean, he can make that statement uh, and that photo op is good, but, you know, Erdogan will continue. He is profiting off of this war. Uh, from one way and then the other and then the other again. And that is what Erdogan does. And he does it well. And he deserves an amount of respect for leveraging every single geopolitical situation, cashing in Turkey's importance geopolitically to everyone to to profit off of it and play everyone off of each other. It's it's what he does. He's good at it, um, you know, up until he isn't. And then he might end badly, but uh, he's he's done well so far. I think more than that, um, uh, Zelensky wanted a photo op with the U.N. secretary general and he got it. So he is claiming international support. I mean, the U.N. secretary general comes to your country and does a photo op with you. You know, he can claim that as some type of international support. And this is what uh, he wanted. This is why he is conducting uh, attacks on the, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant is he feels that Western uh, attention and support, at least especially particularly in Europe, is waning. And there, there are reasons to believe it is. Uh, in July, uh, you know, the six major EU countries made no new military commitments uh, to Kiev, and they have actually been declining since April, even as the U.S. you know, continues uh, sending large amounts. Um, but he, he fears attention and support is waning, so he wants an international incident to refocus attention and where, where you know, he, however ridiculous uh, his claims are, he knows that no one in the West is going to outright deny what he's saying, um, which they haven't. Um, and he gets his photo op with the U.N. secretary general out of it. I'm sure he would like to blow it up into a bigger international incident. But, you know, he'll take what he can get. Now, if I remember your biography correctly, Mark, am I correct that you were a nuke in the Navy? Yes. Or a reactor operator, yes. Okay. So I'm going to call in that expertise. Explain what the actual, because a lot of people actually don't get nuclear stuff. They're not scientists, and they hear a lot of hype about it. And a lot of people are acting like if a bomb hits, it's like a nuclear bomb. Can you explain what the actual danger is from what you know about nukes if they sure. hit the plant with a bomb? Do you see what I'm asking? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, this is a, a big plant. This is the biggest nuclear, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, uh, which has been under Russian jurisdiction since early mid-March. It's the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, and it's one of the 10 biggest in the world. It's some 5,700 megawatts, right? Uh, it's, it's a good size. It provides 20% of Ukraine's electricity. Uh, even under Russian jurisdiction, there are lightly armed Russian troops guarding the facility. Um, Russia has even released um, detailed satellite imagery and invited other countries, uh, the U.S., that have the same capability to show as well, that uh, to verify that there are no Russian heavy weapons there, as the Kiev regime claims. So they're not firing from the plant. They're not firing on the plant. They're being fired on. Um, 
but uh, Ukrainian uh, staff, you know, the the technical, they're still running the plant. Uh, so that hasn't changed. Russia hasn't interrupted in their work, um, just like they did earlier uh, when they were in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the north of the country. Um, they take the nuclear matters extremely seriously, um, and um, they are still providing the Kiev regime-controlled area parts of the country with electricity from this plant. They have not interrupted it at all. Uh, although there is discussion that the best way to avoid any type of problem at this point, if the attacks on the plant continue, may be to, to shut the plants down, right? Um, now, the um, there, there really isn't a chance of a Chernobyl-type accident in this situation. I know uh, the Russian government has been playing this up. You know, for uh, you know the the PR value, but that that is a, a wrong turn of phrase. Um, this is a, a quite different situation. For one thing, the reactor here reactors are protected by reinforced steel and concrete, some 1.5 meters thick. Chernobyl had nothing of the sort, right, when they had their accident. And it is a pressurized water cooled reactor. It is not graphite cooled, and that makes a difference. Um, so in order to penetrate directly, like, say, the reactor, you would need a, a, probably a direct hit with a tactical nuke. No, very little else is going to do it. It's meant to withstand earthquakes and being directly hit by an airplane. You know, so um, now, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't any potential problems or vulnerabilities. The Kiev regime has been firing particularly on the spent the used fuel on it, it, that are in uh, containment facilities on the perimeters of the plant. Now, this is also contained, at, at, at least on paper. What, you know, whether it is it, in practice is another matter, but it should be, according to the specs of the plant, also contained in reinforced steel and concrete containers that are meant to withstand impacts by by high energy impacts, right? Explosives. Um, but if they did manage to penetrate that, that would be a de facto dirty bomb. I, I think that is something that is entirely within the Kiev regime's um, uh, playbook to, to try to, to create a nuclear incident with the hope that that would stop the Russian uh, intervention uh, against the regime in the country there. Um, there is also the possibility of interrupting cooling to the reactors. And if there is a failure of multiple redundant safety systems, right? Something that you don't want, right? You you have multiple redundant. You have uh, uh, cold water injection. You have the emergency diesel generators. If you knock down cooling and multiple safety features fail, something that you hope doesn't happen, then you could potentially have a meltdown. And that would be something more along the lines of Fukushima uh, and very serious. It, it could have radiation effects. Now, again, there are multiple redundant features, safety features here that hopefully would prevent that. So it's not quite as dire as some people present the situation. But at the same time, you, you don't want to play around. You don't want to rely on safety features, right? You you, you don't want to fire on um, a nuclear 
power plant with kamikaze drones um, and our, uh, artillery and uh, multiple launch rocket systems the way the Kiev regime is doing. You just you don't want to do that. That's insanity. Um, but, you know, that's the playbook they're playing from. So you could interrupt the cooling by uh, they've, they've uh, fired on the power lines within the plant, which can temporarily interrupt the, the thing until uh, the power there uh, until they are repaired. Right. Not such a huge deal. But also they have been firing on the nearby uh, hydroelectric dam. Now, this is outside of the plant. It is in another uh, uh, area that that's actually uh, in Kherson province. Uh, but um, that provides cooling water and that could be a problem as well if they destroyed it. And Kiev has, you know, enacted a scorched earth policy already where they've destroyed dams and caused massive flooding, uh, you know, as, as, as part of their uh, defensive strategy. So it, it's entirely, you know, something, again, that is uh, within their playbook to do. And they're trying to blame the attacks on the nuclear power plant on Russian forces. And this is they're making completely contradictory claims. Uh, they're claiming at the same time that Russia is militarily occupying the plant and they're firing out of the plant against Kiev regime forces, knowing that Kiev can't respond. But at the same time, they're also claiming that Russian forces are firing at themselves inside the plant in order to create a nuclear explosion, as they termed it, uh, blow themselves up and blame Kiev. And they have also claimed that Russia is trying to steal Ukraine's electricity, which might be a bit hard to do if they're bombing themselves. But regardless, it's not true either, because Russia is still supplying uh, Kiev regime controlled territory with electricity. So I, I think you can see that these statements that they make make no sense whatsoever. And the Western media simply reverts back on, on this old standby. Well, both sides are blaming each other. And who knows what's really happening? Well, actually, we do know what's really happening because the first attack on the plant was done by kamikaze suicide drones. Uh, this is already almost some four weeks ago. And the Kiev regime admitted to it. Their Ministry of Defense boasted about the attacks that they killed some Russian troops on the grounds of the power plant with uh, uh, suicide drones, probably the same suicide drones that are that are um, uh, provided to them by the United States. So we know they did that attack, at least. Um, and then, uh, you know, the the other attacks and, and they're firing these attacks across uh, a branch of the Dnieper River. Right. Uh, they, they don't control any territory on that bank. Uh, but they're firing across the river um, uh, from territory that they do control. Um, and again, their their hope is is attention, um, an international incident, at at least for the PR value, the refocus of attention, if not actually creating some type of hopefully minor nuclear accident that that might you know lead to a um, you know they would hope to a uh, a cessation of the Russian military intervention, which is not going to happen. Um, so, I mean, that's the situation uh, as it stands on the ground there. It is serious. It is not quite as serious. You know, it's not, oh, my God, uh, Chernobyl is going to happen again tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, uh, you don't want to play around with these things. And it is despicable uh, what 
the regime is doing uh, as as you know uh, as despicable as their motivations are. Now, Mark, let's talk about the fiction that the Ukraine is telling about the, what's going on in the nuclear plan. And let's move on to another topic that I found really interesting. I heard an interview with you the other day where you mentioned science fiction. And I found this fascinating. You said in that interview, and would you regale us with as much detail about this as you want? You said that before this special military operation, for years, there has been in Russia a subcategory of science fiction, because science fiction, like any genre, has subcategories of future Ukrainian-Russian war science fiction. Am I correct? That was in Ukraine. That was in Ukraine. Science okay. fiction conventions yeah. in Ukraine about a future Ukrainian civil war. Because everyone – Ukraine is a long – been known as a national identity divided country, largely geographically along west and east lines with a central Ukraine that doesn't have a strong identity conception that tends to blow either way, depending on political winds and how their pocketbooks are doing. Um, and it's, it's about what does it mean to be Ukraine? What does it mean to be a Ukrainian? And the West Ukrainians, right, these are, the, uh, you know, the descendants of the ones who welcomed uh, Nazi Germany in World War II. West Ukraine was not part of Ukraine for centuries, right, Galicia. It was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then briefly Poland uh, before um, it was taken by the Soviet Union uh, right in you know 1939, the, the right up the run up to World War II, uh, and they, they hate Russia. That, that is the biggest part of their national identity conception. Yeah, they hate the Poles. They hate they, they hate they hated historically the Jews, right? But uh, more than anything, they hate Russians, and that that that's the priority there. They hated the Soviet Union. They hated communism. They hate East Ukrainians, uh, you know, who don't denounce you know, the Russian world, that's what they are. East Ukraine is completely opposite, right? Uh, they're very, tend to be very Soviet nostalgic, um, and they view Russians as brother people. It's really tough to find family in uh, Eastern Ukraine or Western Russia that doesn't have mixed family, right? It's, it's, it's hard to tell where the, the Russian Ukrainian identity and in East Ukraine, they're all, you know, native Russian speaking. Um, so uh, it's cultural, uh, but it's also political. And if you take a look at any of the politics uh, of elections, uh, so forth, for uh, the last uh, you know two decades of independence, you see quite clearly it is, you know, in in Ukrainian terms, red blue. You know, almost down the middle geographically in the country, and and it has been split fairly, you know, fairly evenly along those lines. It was balanced both internally between this domestic divide between East and West, but also because it had these geopolitical components externally, right? Since independence, Ukraine has been, um, uh, it has had its neutrality enshrined in its constitution uh, up until 2014, up until the government was overthrown in, in the West-backed Maidan Putsch. Um, and that helped balance the country, right? If you weren't going completely over to the West or completely over uh, you know, to Russia, then you weren't creating some type of permanent social political uh, division 
in your own country. And that, that balance was kept up until 2014, and it kept the country together. But people knew that a split was coming, and that's why there was science fiction conventions. There's lots of books written about it before this all started, before 2014. Uh, but they even had conventions. And in fact, Yatsen Yuk, if you'll remember the U.S.'s, uh, Victoria Newland's choice for the first putsch prime minister of Ukraine, uh, he even attended one of those conventions. Um, so, um, you know, I've been well with anyone who follows uh, Ukraine, who knows Ukraine, and my, my wife is Crimean, we have family in East Ukraine, knows this. And when I was running uh, in 2010, I was still uh, doing my postgrad at the London School of Economics and Political Science, I was running a crisis scenario for the London International Model United Nations. And I ran a scenario. The scenario I ran was a civil war in Ukraine with Russia entering one side uh, and NATO entering on the other. Um, and that was in 2010. And by the way, I also picked Donald Trump as president of the United States. So <laughs> good job. Now, yeah. now and my guess is you're saying in Ukraine, there was a science fiction convention about future multiple. possible yes, multiple. Yes. Ukrainian-Russian war. Was there any cause? No, a Ukrainian civil war, a Ukrainian civil war, a Ukrainian Forgive civil me. conflict. Even worse cosplay. No cosplay at this convention, right? I, I see. I wasn't there, so I mean, it's possible uh, that people dressed up. I don't know that that part. You know, I have to admit that I I don't know that. Now, you mentioned in passing that these people they felt some nostalgia for the USSR, the Soviet Union, and in I, let me ask you about something. For yeah, yeah, for for I, I, and. I'm going on to another topic that I found in some of my research on Russian restaurants. And correct me if I'm wrong. If you don't know anything about this, just say so. But I saw a couple places, Moscow and St. Petersburg, that there are restaurants that are Soviet-era restaurants. They're like nostalgia restaurants serving USSR-style food. I know it's especially donuts. There seems to be something about Soviet-style donuts. Have you heard about this, Mark? Restaurants yeah, that I, do USSR? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, first let me just jump back one quick. There's actually an article online about this convention. Uh, it's in Slate uh, in July of 2014, the Sci-Fi Writers' War. They predicted and possibly inspired. They didn't inspire anything. The conflict in Ukraine, and now they're fighting it, talking about science fiction civil war convention anyway um that's fantastic so, thanks thanks for mentioning that mark go ahead yeah yeah so um yeah i mean there's lots of uh, nostalgic style soviet um stolovaya which is a, a russian word for like cafeteria uh style food it's it's still quite popular um it's of a particular sort but i mean there is a whole lot of russian cuisine that is really Soviet, right? First of all, in one that it's a mix of uh, foods from all over the former Soviet Union, right? Uh, you know, the 
clove, the spiced rice of Central Asia is incredibly popular. All types of Georgian food, right? You know, foods from all over the Soviet Union mix. So in that sense, but also in the sense that, you know, they often cook things with fairly simple uh, ingredients, uh, you know, sometimes not with what I would consider, you know, the, the height of, of um, uh, you know, culinary um Uh, You're not going to win any five Michelin stars or anything, any Michelin stars or anything like that. But, you know, for one thing in particular, uh, a lot of Soviet food was very heavy on mayonnaise. They loved mayonnaise. Uh, And I I, I mean, I like mayonnaise, but I don't like mayonnaise that much. Just in general, when you go around Moscow, is retro USSR stuff, stuff with the graphic look for the Soviet Union popular? Do you see people a lot in USSR shirts? Just say where, ironically, maybe. No, no. I mean, not not so much shirts. That's a you know. I mean, that would be like as cliche as walking around the United States with you know. Uh, well, okay, it's, maybe it's different for Americans, uh, but not that. But there is a lot of branded uh, goods. You know, food, sodas, things like that. You know, the flavors, the types that people remembered in the Soviet Union, and and they remember, uh, you know, in many ways as as signs of of uh, quality of of you know what we might in in the West call you know non GMO organic food, right? Because you know it's not made with you know uh, any genetically modified food or organisms or or anything of the sort. You know it's it, it the, the 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 farms tend to be a little bit less agribusiness intensive, um, and that type of branding plays very well uh, with a large segment. I mean. It's not to say that everyone does, but it, it plays very well with a large segment of the consumer market here. Um, well, and so. the reason I ask that, Mark, is because I think a lot of Americans assume, you know, they hear the Soviet Union, USSR, and they think it was all a gulag. And that's not true factually. And the people don't remember it like that. If I said in Germany they had an Auschwitz themed restaurant, that would be absurd, and people would yeah. say you you wouldn't have that. But people in the Soviet Union don't think of the USSR as just a big gulag, right, Mark? Yeah. I mean, that's the of course the American Hollywood conception. But you know, American Hollywood, you know, the bad guys always have a Russian and bad Russian, bad Russian bad accent. Anyway, uh, no, I mean that's not the way the people here, the the majority, the the vast majority regard the Soviet Union or remember the Soviet Union at all, which doesn't mean they view it all through rose colored glasses either. Uh, but, you know, they certainly don't view it overwhelmingly as negative, And that holds up a, a, in countless polls and surveys on the subject. Um, I'm drinking right now a pear soda uh, that I quite like. It's called Duchesse, uh, that the, the bottle has retro Soviet branding on it because that type of pear soda was popular in the Soviet Union. And yeah, people had things like pear soda in the Soviet Union. I mean, the the big economic problems that people think of with bread lines and anything, they actually didn't start until Gorbachev started playing around with the economy, trying to, um, you know, uh, change the system in the uh, middle of the 1980s. And uh, people don't remember that. They remember the long period of stability and, you know, relative uh, prosperity, you know, in 
uh, socialist terms of, of the 70s, the 60s, and, and so forth. Yes, and, and so in, in part of this show's goal, my goal, is to increase understanding on the part of Americans and Russians, because I believe, I was talking to John Mark Dugan about this the other day, Mark, as someone who's lived there a long time, I believe that a, a lot of Americans actually, they are, don't have any way they're allowed to express it. It's not considered socially acceptable to like Russia. But I think a lot of Americans, there's nothing about Russia that I think the average American citizen I know, they have an affinity for it. A lot of people tell me, they say, they whisper it like they can't say it. When they find out who I work for, they say, don't tell anyone, but I actually like Russia. Do you think a lot of Americans, more than is reflected in the polls, have an affinity for Russia and even Putin than are allowed to in the West, Mark? I mean, there's a certain segment of the population, sure. And I mean, there's always a fascination, right? I mean, uh, it is is a, a holdover of the, of the Cold War that, you know, uh, a, a certain fascination with the enemy. And Russia is the enemy again. And I think a lot of Americans actually like that because they need an enemy that they can put a black hat on to feel like they are the good guys. And let's face it, Al-Qaeda, you know, they never quite lived up to that type of potential of being an arch enemy. Now, now the U.S. has an arch enemy again. I mean, well, I mean, if you're the Republicans, I guess that's the Chinese, uh, although they're close allies with the Russians. So, I mean, you can you, you can have your cake and eat it, too, if you want. Uh, but, you know, I, I think whether you look at them positively or negatively, there there is a fascination uh, with Russia, you know, in the U.S. And I, to a certain extent. Uh, there is a has always been a fascination with the United States and in Russia and the Soviet Union before that as well. Well, I think now the difference is that people are told that they are the enemy. It, they're told that Republicans and Donald Trump, they're being told that up in, up in Congress in hearings for weeks. We are the enemy and we are being associated by the media with Russia. Trump didn't bring Russiagate on himself, really. He, he was branded. He's not a big Russian ally or big Russian advocate, but he was branded but that way. And all he wasn't in office. Called. Yeah, he wasn't right, in office. I mean, but that was largely, I think, due to that he didn't have control over his own foreign policy. There wasn't much foreign policy consistency from the Trump administration. But one thing that was consistent when he was campaigning, he did always talk about improving relations with Russia. And he seems to, for whatever reason, had a, a degree of personal um, uh, respect uh, in some ways for Putin, uh, even if that played out very differently with, with his administration's sanction war and the increasing intentions. But I think they found that, you know, uh, that heresy from U.S. foreign policy orthodoxy, however small it was, as a convenient crucifix to try to pillory Trump on, which they honestly, I mean, there were so many more, much more real domestic things if you wanted to have a beef with, with Trump to take a beef with him for than, that, than simply the fact that he talked campaigning about improving relations with Russia for whatever reason. 
Well, and I think a lot of Americans look at Russia and essentially Trump looked at it from a common sense point of view and said, I don't see why we're enemies. I don't understand it. And a lot of Americans who look at Russia and America go, what is this animosity towards? And, and we're the ones who have it. And I think a lot of Russian people have been shocked by how deep the animosity of Europeans and Americans is towards Russia. But it's been a big propaganda campaign. Now, Mark, let's go on to the war in Donbass. What's, what's going on? What's the state of things on the ground in with the Donbass war? And I'm going to ask you to explain what people who don't know Ukrainian geography. What is Zaporozhia? And how important is that town of Zaporozhia? And is it, how does it play into what's going on now in the Battle of Donbass? Oh. Okay, so not much, because Zaporozhia is in the south of Ukraine. Um, it is, uh, there is, if you come up from Crimea, that is the south of Ukraine. You have then Kherson and Zaporozhia. And these is areas of Ukraine that basically gave up at the start of the Russian intervention for various reasons, uh, because there's a large Russian sympathetic population there, um, whether you're ethnic Russian or Ukrainian. Um, and um, uh, so, I mean, it's tangential uh, to the conflict in Donbass. The Kiev regime always is talking about a um, uh, a counteroffensive that they're planning on launching. They've been talking about it for months that has never materialized because they don't have the capability to do combined arms maneuver anymore. They've lost too many of the of uh, equipment, too many uh, people, experienced military capable, uh, uh, too many officers, too, too many. They're just not capable of, of real offensives at this point. The best thing they can do is sit in trenches and fortifications and defend. Uh, but the most of the conflict is centered in Donbass in East Ukraine. And this is, uh, you know, the area that is the population there is most sympathetic to Russia. Um, this is where the civil conflict in Ukraine was being waged for the last eight years by the Maidan Putsch that seized power in Kiev against the people of East Ukraine in Donetsk and Lugansk cities. And Lugansk, one, you know, like say one half of the Donbass has been uh, completely liberated for uh, the Lugansk Republic, as they call themselves now. Now, there are two defensive lines left in Donetsk, and these are tough defensive lines, right? Uh, the Ukrainian military has been built up over the last eight years, built up, you know, by NATO with NATO training and NATO military, and they built up extensive fortifications in the Donbass, in Donetsk, for eight years. Steel, concrete, right? They were built into uh, East Ukraine. Is is, is a type of environment. It's very uh, urban, small agglomerations, uh, factories, right, that were built by the Soviet Union. And they built factories like fortresses and often with nuclear bunkers beneath them. So um, they, all the fortifications are kind of built into this. And um, it really is a, a fortress that very much uh, favors defensive fighters, you know, uh, who uh, otherwise, you know, would would 
uh, you know, be wiped on, say, the steps of of South Ukraine. So it's tough going. But uh, Russia adopted, you know, probably by the end of of March, beginning of April, the strategy that, uh, you know, favors the the way the Russian military is situated. Uh, They uh, do their own variety of shock and awe, but with heavy artillery and rocket systems, which they do very well. And their strategy to to maximize Kiev regime casualties while minimizing their own is they will soften up these fortifications often for several weeks, right, before then uh, until nothing is moving, basically, and then move in. And according to the Kiev regime, uh, the artillery advantage there is like 15 to 1 on the Russian side. They've lost, Kiev regime has lost so much artillery, so many rocket systems, 700 some rocket systems, right? Their own indigenous equivalent of the HIMARS, which is why it's ridiculous to think that 16 HIMARS systems is somehow going to change the course of this conflict. Russia's already destroyed 700 of their own such systems, even if they were of slightly inferior quality. It, it doesn't make any difference when Russia has air dominance or even air superiority in the east over the area of the conflict. Um, so um, it was a month ago that Russia pushed through the that defensive line at Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, and they've been softening up right the fortifications on the next line, um, shaping the battlefield, as it's called in military parlance. And this is the line that runs from, if you pull up a map, it's Seversk, Solidar to Bakhmut, and then down to uh, Advevka in the south. Uh, and uh, there's only one more defensive line past this. And after that, there's no similar defensive um, lines, fortifications, or terrain anywhere else in Ukraine. So this is kind of like militarily, this is where the Kiev regime is making their stand where it's best for them to do so, where they have built up defenses for eight years, where you know they can simply stick infantry in there, uh, you know, uh, often conscripted conscripts with no training, but they can still, you know, hold out and do damage to a numerically much smaller Russian intervention force if Russia wasn't using the tactics and their brutal tactics, right? Let, let, let's be honest about that. I, um, uh, my own video channel uh, on YouTube, The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda, I uh, put up a letter from a Ukrainian at the uh, at the front. Uh, in one of these uh, um, defensive lines uh, and the conditions there um, that was published uh, on a Ukrainian media outlet. And I just read the whole letter out loud. If you want to see what the front is really like there, uh, listen, listen to that letter on my channel on YouTube. And it's grim. It's uh, it's you know, it's not pleasant. And for someone who has lots of family in East Ukraine, uh, you know, I don't want this conflict to go on. I want, uh, you know, the casualties to be minimized. But I also want the regime in Kiev gone, as as does my family in East Ukraine there. Um, But right now, Russia has basically finished shaping operations on this second to last defensive line. They have made a lot of progress in the last week. They've taken a, a heavily fortified town for the last eight years, Pesky, and they're also uh, enveloping, taking small settlements uh, on the sides of, of Bakhmut and Solodar um, and, and even Seversk in the north. And I think you're going to see uh, 
big another big surge of movement uh, as Russia takes that defensive line in the next two weeks. And then you'll see another period of, you, uh, you know, the, the, the Western media presents it as stalling or a stalemate. It's not. It's just the tactics that Russia is using to minimize casualties on their own side and take what they and do Mark, what they need to do. Time, can, can, yeah. You mentioned your YouTube channel. Can you tell people the name of your YouTube channel once again so they can find all yeah. the great stuff you do? The Real Politik with Mark Sloboda. Thanks so much, Mark Sloboda. It's midnight in Moscow. So, Mark, good night. Fantastic appearance as usual, illustrating what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and culturally with Russia. When we come back, we'll have more stuff to talk about and taking your calls, 202-521-1320. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is The Backstory. On the backstory, and we're on the radio, 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is the backstory. And we're halfway through a Friday edition, end of the week, a double mark edition. Mark Sabato just joined us in a fantastic appearance. Everything from Russia, Ukraine, to Ukrainian science fiction, to Soviet-style food. We had it all for you in in that segment. Right, Rod? Yeah, and of course, a little bit of a discussion of uh, Erdogan's motives. And, of course, a little discussion of food, since it's me. I find it actually very interesting that, did you know that about the Soviet style USSR style restaurants in in Russia I think we talked about it with John Mark Dugan that's where I learned about it yeah it's fascinating but you you know what it's the equivalent of in fact let me get to the boom coming up to this hour Mark Frost on the backstory General and I kind of from looking at these restaurants they kind of are like Imagine if you had a restaurant in America that was made up like the Depression, and right? And so it was that style, you know, and it would kind of be nostalgic. If if someplace had Depression-era food, you can picture what would be simple American rustic, and you can picture what the architecture would look like. And it would look like something from days gone by. And it would be a nostalgic feeling. And also, a lot of the people there, of course, they grew up, if they were Soviet-style donuts, as a kid, that's what they ate, since the Soviet Union didn't fall till the end of the 80s. So they grew up eating that. So it's nostalgia. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, that makes sense. And so... Fascinating interview, as always, with Mark Sabota. Now, uh, another thing, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but what what keeps going on 
is the delays by the DOJ over why they raided Mar-a-Lago. And it's very interesting. The court has ordered them sort of to start redacting material. But I will say, I'm skeptical of this judge more and more. This judge, Judge Reinhardt, do you trust him, Rod? Be honest. No, not at all. Not at all, Lee. Uh, I don't trust this guy. His his background, his connections to Epstein and certain Democratic politicians is just one of the sketchiest things we've ever seen. And uh, you know, Merrick Garland, Mike Pence, and uh, other people are, hey, don't you don't criticize the DOJ and the FBI, and they're waving their finger at you. Don't don't do that. Yeah, I saw Pence doing that, and I really question Pence doing that. I'm not saying have a again. I want to. I want the truth. That's all I want. So, if this guy, what what I saw, was the judge in this, he was on the Epstein case, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rod. And if you don't know, just say so, because I don't want to be wrong on this. Then I read that he went to work for Epstein. Is that part correct? That's correctly. I've heard that from uh, multiple sources uh, over since. This whole thing happened, so uh, nobody's uh, refuted that, and uh, so, yeah. So it would be one thing if he worked in the Epstein case. If he was a prosecutor in the Epstein case, that makes sense. He's in Florida. That's nothing wrong with that, right? Admittedly, you don't think there's anything wrong with working on the Epstein case, right? Um, Initially, no. Right. But when I hear someone after the case went to work for Epstein's, on his legal team. Do you know who that reminds me of, actually? Jonathan Weiner. Jonathan Weiner is a longtime associate of John Kerry, and he's one of the central figures in Russiagate. But they never talk about him. I'm the journalist who's been talking about him. You, of course, have heard about him from my reporting, right, Rod? Jonathan Weiner? Yeah, he's also been uh, he's also been on the CNN and other media. Me- mainstream media outlets uh, when uh, Trump accused Obama of spying on him. Now, I point out that Jonathan Weiner initially worked for the DOJ investigating Mikhail Kordakovsky. He was investigating him, and he found that when Mikhail Kordakovsky, the Russian billionaire oligarch, who at one point was the richest man in the Soviet Union, right? Kordakovsky was the richest man in the Soviet Union, and he was investigated for a murder of a mayor that had happened in relationship to Yukos Oil. He was being investigated for being involved in a murder, and Jonathan Weiner was part of that investigation. So he was investigating Kind of criminally, not that he would have prosecuted him, but the U.S. wants to know who the criminals are. Jonathan Weiner was investigating him. Got me? Then he quit the DOJ. And who did he go to work for, Rod? Um, Jonathan Weiner. Kordakovsky, right? Kordakovsky. So knowing he was a criminal, you see what I'm saying? It's one thing if you take a client and you don't know he's a criminal. They say you're not supposed to know. Don't ask your clients whether they're guilty. They say, you've heard that, right? The lawyers are supposed to not ask. 
But he knew right. about Weiner because he'd investigated him. And then he went to work for him. Jonathan Weiner is Mikhail Korkowski's lawyer to this day. And he's Bill Browder's lawyer. He's the guy who got Korkowski and Browder together for the Magnitsky Act. J- Jonathan Weiner is the guy who put together the way a producer puts together a film. Jonathan Weiner is the guy who put together the Magnitsky Act. So I'm suspicious of people who, you, you understand what I'm saying? If you're working for Al Capone and you used to be investigating Al Capone, you're really a bad guy. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, we've just uh, talked about two people, Reinhardt and now uh, Jonathan Weiner. And, you know, if we were attorneys, Lee, wouldn't, we, wouldn't you argue that's pattern and practice? Yes. So uh, that, that's why, because the thing about Reinhardt going to work for Epstein, you, you understand what I'm saying? It almost sounds too good, by which I mean bad. It almost sounds too bad to be true that he worked for Epstein, and then he's pulled in on this, because apparently there's also some type of stuff about the timing of the warrant. Have you seen this, Rod, the questions about the timing? Well, yeah, a lot of people have been asking if, if you know, what, why the wait? If, if this, you know, Trump's got these documents and are so dangerous and there's so much worry, why are you waiting? You know, why did you wait so long since he's been to Mar-a-Lago to get these documents? You know what I'm saying? And I'll, just to reiterate, we got David from New York on the line. Now, do we have a clip today? No clip. Okay. So I heard something last night. Uh, was I think it was last night. It was on. But it could have been the night before. Did you hear Marjorie Taylor Greene on Tucker talking about the new legislation that Marjorie Taylor Greene is putting forward? Yeah, to stop uh, these uh, surgeries on children. Yeah. To stop genital mutilation of minors. Is anything factually incorrect there? It's stopping general mutilation of minors. That should not be a controversial position, right? Rod, in a sane world, if you ask someone, what's your position on genital mutilation of minors? It should be an obvious answer, right? Yeah, we had the um, one of the state attorney, U.S. attorneys from... Uh from Boston or the Massachusetts area, Rachel Rollins, who's uh, backed by Soros, come out in an uh, official statement that people threatening or criticizing, uh, I think it was Boston Medical Group Hospital, where they were had a, a commercial uh, promoting the, the surgeries. We're talking about these uh, mutilation of children. And she, so she, and then she, reiter- she reiterated how Merrick Garland and DOJ stand behind uh, protecting these surgeries for these children, these, this mutilation. And also, you know, my girlfriend was telling me this, and this is a, it, it makes perfect sense. Because of the media's silence on this issue, they would not cover this issue. But it makes sense to me. She was telling me, a lot of times, you you, you hear about, on, on Fox or whatever, libs of TikTok, you might hear some stories where there was a surgery disaster, where the surgery went wrong, and someone's got genital surgery as a minor, and it went horribly. You've heard those stories, Rod. But what my girlfriend was telling me, Danny was saying, that even when the surgery goes well, there's oftentimes complications. And they don't talk about the complications, that they're common. 
Does that make sense, Rod? Oh yeah, for sure. Lee, this, I mean, <laughs> I mean, what, what are we talking about here? There is no precedent of, uh, changing the sex from boy to girl or girl to boy. And, uh, we're not even talking about the psychological, but just the, uh, physiological, you know, there is no exact science to this. And, you know, a lot of these doctors doing these surgeries, it's all about the money. They, you know, they drown themselves in their own drugs and whatever pleasures to, you know, forget about what they've just done. Because I'm no doctor. I'm, in fact, a patient. But uh, I know enough about medical stuff to know that there's a concept of rejection. In other words, it happens sometimes when you combine parts from people that the patient, their body rejects the body part, right, Rod? Yeah. Let's say you were getting a kidney transplant. Um, even yes. even if the same the same blood match and everything, they do the surgery and they find out that you know you uh, like you said the, the, your body's rejecting that organ. So they even though that's a good kidney from let's say uh, eighteen year old who for some reason died and now that's they're you know an organ donor. You know your body still might reject that kidney. And like I said, there is no exact science to changing someone's sex. So it's all craziness. No, and and furthermore, the people on the other side of this, and a lot, a lot of them are Soros-backed and New World Order-backed, because this is a trans issue for them. For the people on the other side of this, this is an issue of gender assignment, right, Rod? That's the way they view this. They view this as letting a 17-year-old be the gender they truly are. And so they'll give the, a girl a double mastectomy and remove both her breasts or give a boy chemical castration. And that's what's happening. And it's not only legal, but it's encouraged. And I think a lot of people are horrified, horrified when they find out it's often done with like a two-hour consultation. Like almost no time is spent. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, you know the phenomenon that I'm talking about, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure, Lee. Then, then, you know, I know you're saying this and people are hearing it and they might not believe it, but this is this is 100% true. And that's why I say these doctors, they want to get this done as fast as possible uh, because they want to forget about it. You know, uh, some of them obviously enjoy it and are, are for it, but it's just a, just a cash transaction. You know, this is how they fund their, their lifestyles. And, you know, they want this patient uh, out of their uh, operating room and gone. You know, let, let the parents and let society deal with it. And some may ask, gee, Lee, you're a libertarian. Why do you care about people's sex lives? I don't care about people's sex lives. But anybody who's in favor of liberty, anybody, should oppose New World Order lies. And this is a fundamental thing where they're trying to gaslight you on what gender is. They're trying to get you to believe something that's not true. And do you agree, is this about people's sex lives at all, Rod? Or what do you see the issue as? As mutilating children and getting people to go along with a lie and believe something that's not true? And not, as I say, the press won't talk about this issue critically. All I want to know is are there long-term problems for a fair number of people who have this kind of surgery? And I want to know that because I would want to know that if my child or me 
were facing at surgery. If you're going to go into surgery, would you want to know that it ends badly for like 70% of people? I'm not saying that's true. But Rod, if you're getting heart surgery, would you want to know that like 70% of people died or whatever? Yeah, you're supposed to uh, inform your patient of uh, any of these tragedies that might happen, uh, adverse effects of the surgery, a um, whole list of things you're supposed to go over with them, con consult with them, and to make sure that they're ready for the surgery. But, you know, obviously these parents are pushing their children, and like I said, these doctors are just want the cash flow, so they'll go along, you know, they'll try to keep this as short and sweet as possible. But, you know, like you were saying, this isn't about sex, this is children, so, you know, children's sex don't mix, uh, just their sex, which would be male or female, and we have to protect the most vulnerable. It's usually, you know, we have to protect the women and children. Lee, if, if the if the ship's sinking, you and I would sacrifice ourselves for women and children. But uh, you know, in two, 2022, what is a woman? Right. No, that that's exactly right. That's why the definitional issue is so important because we've had people up on in front of Congress. Who's the one who famously did? Was it the press secretary? Kentucky. Was asked. Was asked, would, what's a woman? Supreme Court, uh, um, right. Jackson, and uh, she gave her Ivy League answer. Well, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. Uh, you know how stupid of, of, a, of a woman to say that she doesn't know what makes her a woman because she doesn't have a biology degree. I mean, that's one of the stupidest things in history. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is my point. If they can convince you that it's questionable what a woman is. If they can convince you that it's questionable what a woman is, the next thing is they can convince you that a recession is not two straight quarters of GDP loss. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, it makes total sense, Lee. It makes total sense. But I think that's more sadistic to try and change the definition of a woman. You know, uh, the, the, you're destroying womanhood, you're destroying motherhood, uh, things that are important in society. And, you know, they want to break down society. It's very clear they want to break down society. I'm approaching it as a propaganda technique, Rod. If they can convince you that what you see and what you know to be true, 100% yourself, something easy like what's a woman? It's an elementary question. You wouldn't ask any adult that. Everyone knows. If they can get you to question that, then selling you on something like recession is easy. Does that make sense? What I'm, what I'm contending is that that's the big lie. Gaslighting you on gender is a way of setting you up for comparatively minor political lies. Right, just like the Inflation Reduction Act that's not going to do anything to inflation. Let me put it, let me use a term a lot of Fox News viewers and people on the right will recognize. You're being groomed. You, you, the voter, are being groomed by Democrats to accept lies, no matter how absurd. That's my contention is, Rod. Do you think voters are being groomed by Democrats? Go ahead. Do your best for that one, Rod. <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's going to be a, a banned word soon, Lee. Uh, groomers, you know, they, they hate being called uh, groomers when it comes to their affinity for uh, children's desire to transition into women, or I mean, to girls, or uh, become trans, trans kids, or drag, drag queen story hour, and all this 
craziness that in, in another time these people would be terrified to even think of saying it out loud. But, you know, right now where we're on society, they, they feel brave enough. And we should talk about this with the great Carl Aaron sometime because he's good with the philosophical stuff. But I've been watching as a reporter a lot of stuff in the news, and you're left with the question in a lot of these stories, like the trans stuff, what are they after? What are they actually after? Who are they trying to convince with this stuff? And this is why I've come to. If they can sell you, if they can gaslight you on the big lie, they can sell you. See, because I see them going from gender to something like if if you'd put to me 15 years ago, if you just said to me, and I hadn't seen any of this stuff that's happened recently, you'll, you'll be able to convince people that recession's not recession. You'll get a president who, when recession numbers come out, they'll go, no, that's not recession. And literally, did you see Wikipedia change the definition of recession and wouldn't let you change it back? Did you see that, Rod? Yeah, I did see that, Lee. And I learned a long time ago, even before I went to college, to never really trust Wikipedia because anybody can change it. And that was a long time ago. So now now you're not even allowed to change it back. Right. But what I like about Wikipedia is it's got tools in. It's got the history page so you can follow what changes have been made to it. So there's a way to find that stuff. It, it said Wikipedia, they designed that software with a lot of smart stuff in it. So, but it's astounding that people, if, if you told me the dictionary would change the definition of racism to include basically to be systemic racism, to include prejudice plus power, I, I wouldn't believe that. I would say dictionaries don't change definitions based on political whims. But now I see that they do. The other fight back that's going on right now, and I say fight back, he was fired. The guy who's the AG of Florida, the guy DeSantis fired, Warren, his name is, the Soros-appointed AG, who's refusing, he said he was not going to uphold Roe v. Wade being overturned. And DeSantis said, okay, you're not going to uphold law. You're fired. He is now saying that his rights were violated and he wants his job back. I'm not surprised. He's a lawyer after all. But are you, are you shocked that the guy who was elected with Soros money is fighting to get his AG job back so he could not follow the law? Rod, did you see that in the headlines? Yeah, I did see that. That is a story that uh, I've seen on CNN, Reuters. They're obviously following it because it's a fight between DeSantis and uh, this left-wing attorney. And uh, no, I'm not surprised. And, um, you know, like you said, uh, he's an attorney, so what do you expect? He's going to go out kicking and screaming and try everything he can to keep his job. Or try to get his job back. And and I'm waiting for them to accuse DeSantis of being anti-Semitic because George Soros, at some point, his family was Jewish. He's not. He's an atheist. He's a logical positivist. He's a fan of the philosopher Karl Popper. Look that up. If you you want boring philosophical stuff, 
that George Soros believes. Look up George Soros, Carl with a K like Marx, Carl Popper, like the nickname of the drug that was popular in the gay community in the 80s, Poppers. Look, look that up, too. But Carl Popper, Soros is a big fan of Karl Popper. And so he's an atheist. He's not Jewish, Yakov Shapiro says, that Judaism is actually for people who, like, believe in God. That's, I know, wacky. But definitions, here we are again. So are you waiting for them to call DeSantis? You've seen people, Rod, correct, say that criticism of Soros is inherently anti-Semitic. You've seen that, correct? Oh, yeah. The uh, online on Twitter, you could see almost, like I said, in, in lockstep, if, if Soros is in the headlines and you do any comment, they'll all say, oh, you know, that's and, and this person's anti-Semitic for making any comments against uh, George Soros. But, you know, George Soros, uh, we don't have to speak to him. He's like some type of uh, holy figure, if you think about it, because you never see any statements from him himself. It's just people defending him, him and his, his son and his family. You know, obviously Alex Soros, you can look on his social media. He's his best friends with uh, politicians from both sides, Republicans and Democrats. And it's actually... Speaking, speaking of sci-fi, it's a weird science fiction thing. We'll, we'll go to break here in a second. But uh, uh, an alternate, I think the reason, I, I've noticed a lot of Russians in their media and their criticisms, they don't actually get, they criticize Soros, but they don't get the role of him. A lot of Americans don't either. But I think the reason the Russians don't get it is because there's no equivalent in Russia, not just of George Soros, but of the civil society groups. There's no equivalent of all these independent think tanks that are actually tools of the deep state. So, Rod, let me ask you a quick question, and then we'll go to a break. Then we'll come back with Mark Frost. Do you think in this country that those civil society groups, NGOs, and so on— like the Soros groups, all these charities, do you think that almost all of them are in fact used as tools of the deep state, as tools of the CIA and FBI? Is that how you think they're actually used, Rod? Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, Lee. And um, just on a uh, you know we talked about immigration and all you know two thousand people. Uh, being led into the country, uh, you know, even Corinne Pierre, uh, John, the uh, White House press secretary, says that you know these people are being processed and these non NGOs are sending them across the country. So we we don't even know what happens after they get here and they get set up with these NGOs, but they are being bussed and fl flew around these countries from NGOs. Also, NGOs are a great way to launder money. They're a great way to take over government services and have the money go somewhere. And it's unaccountable at that point because it's, you know, li limited accountability. So we'll take a short break. When we, when we come back, we're joined by the great Mark Frost on a fr faux Frosty Friday. I, it get, could get dangerous there. I got to watch out. So it's a Frosty Friday on the backstory.
We are back on the backstory, and we are on the radio on 105.5 FM, AM, 1390, in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, entrepreneur, Eagle Scout, educator, economist, prog rock drummer, Mark Frost. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing quite well. I have three learned economists right next to me. Oh, really? So where are you're at an, an economist convention or an uh, economist get-together at Waffle House? No, possibly cats. Oh, okay. I don't want to know what their economy is. Now, Mark, I'll mention a music thing to you. I often do on your parents'. Go. Have you looked up on YouTube? Have you seen the Lennon Claypool Delirium? That's Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son, with Yoko, and Les Claypool, the bassist from Primus. They have a band. Have you seen their cover of In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson? No, I haven't. So I'd advise it. Look it up. It's pretty good. It's it's a pretty true. true. I'm just going to say, obviously, I'm interested already. Uh, I don't know if you yeah. know it or not. Robert Fripp, uh, he actually commissioned a documentary that was done, and it was shown at South by Southwest, and for some reason it hasn't been released yet. But it looks really interesting, and I'm I'm a huge King Crimson fan, uh, huge. Well, I'll tell you about every single uh, album they've ever done, all 40 or ever, how many of them there are. And uh, I followed the band from every iteration that they've had from the beginning. Uh, I mean, I I came on to them after they had already debuted, but but I caught up quick. So, yeah, it's probably the most influential band that there is on me. And I think it's neat that Les Claypool and Sean Lennon are covering him. It shows that they have pretty good musical taste. I'll see what else shows they have good musical taste. Do you want other songs that cover? You're never going to believe this because it's a weird song to cover by Crimson. Thelo Hunginji. <laughs> so that's from the late, later iteration of King Crimson. It's an obscure King Crimson song, Thelo Hunginji. But they cover it. Isn't that weird? It is. Now, another band I love is Jethro Tull. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, no, I didn't, but I'm not surprised. But I'm a huge Tull head. So, Mark, we got our moment of prog rock out of the way. But... Again, and the other thing no, I mentioned that no. the, 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 the Claypool Len Delirium did is they covered all of Russia's Farewell to Kings album. They covered the entire album live. I mentioned that before. Uh, but you can find it on YouTube. Any proud rock nerds. Now, well, let's uh, turn to the economist nerd, Mark. Shall we? Okay. Yes. So feel free to throw in a philosophy nerd. How epistemological... A crisis is it that the Biden administration is attempting to redefine recession? Well, this is one reason why I fought wokeness so hard. It isn't that I disagree necessarily, even with some of their desired outcomes. It's that how they go from A to Z makes no logical sense from an epistemological perspective. So they they practice very bad epistemology. Basically, if they feel something is true, it's true. So basically their logic goes something like Marxism is true. 
Well, some things about Marxism has, have been shown to be very false. Well, then there's something wrong with the truth. That's how they think. And so that's why they—so when they attacked mathematics departments, saying 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a, is a white construct, and just ridiculous things, that's when I sort of turned on that issue, and I was like, okay, this is more important than I've given it credit for, because in academia, they were just a tiny little corner of the academic world nobody paid any attention to. And then suddenly, bam, they were, you know, released the Kraken. No, that's a, that's a fantastic summary, Mark. And it, it dovetails on what I was saying last hour, that I think the, uh, in fact, last half hour, that the philosophical basis of the transgender stuff, for instance, is to gaslight you, to cut down your resources. So if you can't know something obvious, like what's a woman, if that's a debatable issue, then everything's up for grabs. Yes, and literally everything is. Uh, did we leave billions of dollars of equipment in Afghanistan or or, or did we not? Uh, were the, was the Afghan army able to take care of itself or was it not? I mean, there was all this gaslighting that goes on. And then in my area, uh, you know, I've been talking about inflation for for you, since you guys have known me. And, you know, then suddenly it's like, oh, no, this isn't even inflation. This is just volatility in the market. And then it was like, okay, it's inflation, but it's only transitory. Then a few months go by, and then, you know, they're, well, okay, it's not transitory, but it's special inflation because it's going to go away if we spend more money. <laughs> and it just keeps on going on and on and on. And to a person like me, it's a Saturday Night Live skit. It's just silly. This literal, I mean, literal silliness has taken over government. And it's bizarre. And, you know, if you're like me, you've been engaged in political and philosophical discussions just as a person, as a citizen. You know, I remember debating stuff in college. You know what I'm talking about? Staying up all night and debating with people. And whenever we used to get into those college debates, eventually the person I was debating with, and I took the position that there is such a thing as reality. And my opponent would eventually say, no, reality is whatever I say it is. And then I would say to them, well, then go walk out on the highway. Prove it. Walk in front of a moving car. And they never did, thank God. Have you gotten to a point where you say to people, go, go ahead. If you believe in re reality is just whatever you decide it is, walk in front of a moving car. And they never do. But they do push the economy in front of a moving car. Do you see what I'm saying? If they get into government, they don't have to put their own life on the line. They put our lives on the line. What say you, Mark? Any, they don't have any skin in the game whatsoever. I agree with you 100% on that. So, and that's one of the problems from a macroeconomic perspective. There's a lot of skin in the game. It's just not the skin of the people making the decisions. And as I've been talking about now for years on, on this show and other shows on the same network, is that I'm worried we're headed into a fascist economic system in this country. And you know what happens when you head into a, you don't just stick to a fascist economic system. It eventually 
becomes totalitarian. And I am concerned about that. It's, it's you know, it, it stirs up my inner Ayn Rand, put it that way. <laughs> no, under, understood. And uh, now, have you been following the situation with Europe and the sanctions? Europe seems to be pulling back, but they're doing it in a stealth way. They're not making an announcement we're backing off these sanctions on food, for instance. They put the Russian sanctions initially on food. Then they started to get warned about the food crisis. But they couldn't just say, oops, we were wrong, so we won't do that. So, But they've been quietly backing off the sanctions. Have you been seeing this at all, Mark? Uh, yes. In fact, I was on uh, Fault Lines, I think it was, a few days ago, and I talked about that. And I'm like, okay, I'm not buying it. Uh, I don't care what the government says. I don't care what anybody else says. It doesn't make any sense because if you look at the ruble, just if you just look at, just get a graph, get the data, put it in Excel, or just do something online, graph the ruble, and you'll see that it's been incredibly stable other than an initial drop, which I bought at immediately when it dropped, I bought. And then it bounced back up, and it even exceeded where it was at. And it stayed at its baseline that it's been at for years. So that tells me the only way that's possible is if, is if foreign currencies are being converted into rubles to buy stuff. So had you finished your point there, Mark? Yeah. And one of the ways they seem to have been masking the fact that they were backing off these sanctions was the supposed crisis at Odessa with the ports. We were told in the media for a couple of weeks, there's a huge food crisis and Russia caused it. And it's about these ports at Odessa. Now, apparently it turns out that that was just a ruse. Have you heard that, Mark? Uh, yes, I have. And I would not, right now, I would not be surprised if it's true. There's a lot that we don't know about all of this, it seems to me. It's just Western media has decided, like, it's almost like a memo went out, and everybody has a fixed opinion on this, and it almost doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. So uh, this is what libertarians like me fear about bipartisanship. <laughs> no, exactly right. And you've seen in Congress, Republicans and Democrats have many disagreements in theory about abortion or whatever. But by the way, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. On the abortion issue, uh, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, I've noticed when there are votes in front of the people is I'm going to say, and I know people who are staunchly pro-life, I know we disagree, but fine. I think a moderate position on abortion is the first trimester is okay, or life of the mother incest. Would you, do you understand what I'm getting at there, Mark, why I say that's a moderate position? Yeah, I just don't think that that's necessarily true, man. <laughs> From a, from a pro-life perspective? Because, I mean, you were talking about epistemology earlier, and this is what makes abortion such an interesting topic to have an intellectual conversation about, but so difficult to have an emotional conversation about. Because, you know, from an epistemological perspective, it's all about 
the premise that you are proceeding with. So if life begins at conception, if that's when you're a person and the 14th Amendment kicks in, you know, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, blah, blah, blah. So if it's a person at conception, then not only can the government intervene, the government has an obligation to intervene to protect all persons. So a a an epistemological determination has to be made. Is the fetus a person? And if it's a person, when does it become a person? At conception, at three months, six months, eight months? Is it even a person after it's born? That's, that hasn't always been a universal thought. And so that's what makes this issue so difficult, because you're literally having to pit what is viewed as legitimate interests in self-help, self-medication, privacy of one's own health choices with the rights of others. It's a classic negative externalities argument in economics. So my rights, I don't get to dump sewage in my backyard so it seeps into your backyard. Uh, so my rights end where they start violating yours. That's always been sort of the cornerstone of American jurisprudence. And I'm like you, Lee, I think. It feels good. The Roe v. Wade mechanism kind of feels good. It seems to balance states' rights with this. It's a horrible jurisprudence. It's a horrible Supreme Court decision. But the outcome is one that I generally think is wise within a federalist system. Well, also, it's one, and the analysis you gave there of that was, you know, scientific. But I don't think most people think about it that much. When you ask them, what, what do you think about this issue? They want to give a quick answer, and they don't want to think about it that much. And first trimester is less horrifying to them than the horror stories you hear about a baby's arm being ripped out or whatever in third trimester abortion stories. And incest, rape of the mother, rape, life of the mother, those issues, I don't think anybody, I've never met anybody who actually says, nope, I'm hardcore, mother must die. I've never met anybody like that. So Really? I, I've met them in the South especially in the small fundamentalist churches. Uh, and it's because, whether they know what epistemology is or not, from an epistemological perspective, they've decided that God has told them that a person, that, that a human life begins at conception. Yes. No, no, yeah. And so that's so. Given that premise, why does it matter whether there was rape or incest or threat to the life of the mother? Why why does the mother's life have precedence over some other life if indeed they're both persons? This is the conundrum that is in the that is in the abortion debate. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, I was talking uh, when was it? One of the shows this week. We we're talking about the issue of healthcare, 
And I thought of something I didn't say, but I'll, I'll bring it up with you. Uh, one of the interesting things about discussions about health care in this country between Democrats and Republicans, I actually disagree with the Republican position in that they don't actually see that their position is a corporate version of socialized medicine. And they talk about like death panels and they say, well, eventually if we have socialized medicine, bureaucrats on a board will make a decision whether your grandma lives or dies. And that's true. There comes a point where they say, you know. It's already happened, Lee, that it's uh, called hospice. Right. That's exactly what I was going to say. It already happens. Yeah, I mean. In any health care. They pay 100% of it. Because it's cheaper for them to just say, okay, we'll pay all of this, and it's only for pain. We're not going to do any preventative or curative care. It's for pain only. But we pay for everything. And so it's good for the estates. And it gets uh, and it gets Medicare off the hook for collection. And I know you're I know you're a cat lover, so I don't want to trigger you, Mark. But that's a good example. Everyone knows that you you can love your pet as much as you can love anything. But there's going to come a day when you drive to the vet and they say, "Okay, I can keep her alive for another week, and it'll be two thousand bucks." That and then you go me 18 months ago. I know, man. And it's it's just a, it's bad. There's nothing good about that choice, but it's a common choice. It you know you know I'm just saying common. It's not a rare thing. It's not stuff of science fiction. It's something that happens to regular people on a regular basis, and they forget that they act like. The death panels are going to be the government. I personally don't know whether it's going to be the government bureaucrats or the bureaucrats at Sanford, my health care provider. Does it make sense? It's, it's a panel either way. Because you have to ration health care. You can ration it through the market, which means that some people are going to have great health care. And... Some people are going to have bad health care and others aren't going to have any health care. So if society comes in and says, okay, we want to, we want to socialize this. I think the common term is Medicare for all. We can do that. I mean, if that's what society wants to do, I mean, it can certainly be done, but it still has to be rationed. Uh, the British system, if you go study the British yeah. system, honestly, and I mean not from a previous bias, yeah. just literally, you literally want to go see what are the pros and cons of the British system. You'll see that one of the cons is how they have to ration. There are wait, waiting lists for almost anything that is even semi-elective. Now, if it's an emergency situation, it's top-notch. You get in, they get you well, it doesn't cost a dime. But if you have a bum leg, but you can walk on it, it's just painful. It's, it's, it's going to take a, a while, certainly relative to what, what most Americans are used to. It's, it's going to take a while to, to go get that operation. And it's because it, 
it, the, the health care or any good, anything that's valued, has to be rationed by some process. It can be rationed by the market. It can be rationed, rationed by a bureaucrat, either public or private. Great explanation, that, Mark Frost. Now, the other things going on this this week, uh, we are coming up on. Uh, I'm, I'm going to allow you to act as prognosticator. What do you think gas prices are going to do, Mark Frost? Because what I see happening, I, what I've heard, but you can explain this better than I. I've heard. The Biden administration was able to tamp gas prices down 50, roughly 50 cents a gallon in the past month. But they've been squeezing it down, and they can't do it much longer. And that gas prices are going to shoot up, possibly to higher levels before. So prognosticate away, Mark Cross. What do you think is going to happen to gas prices, and why is it happening? They're going to double probably by the end of the year. So that's how bad it is. And the reason for that is really twofold. First of all is supply. We're all, that's kind of in the news all the time. Supply, supply, supply. This, uh, you know, this permit was denied. That permit was denied. You know, this oil well isn't running. Uh, this pipeline was shut down. Uh, so on. And Mark, Mark, let me interrupt you for one sec. Just to ask you a quick follow-up question. Because uh, what you just said. This is the date I care about. By November 4th, do you, what do you think the state will be of gas prices on Election Day, the day people go to vote for every single member of the House of Representatives and much of the Senate? On that day, what do you think gas prices are going to be? Take a guess, Mark. I think it's hard to forecast for a particular day, but I think what you're saying is what are gas prices likely to be in, say, 60 days? So let's say 45 to 90 days, something like that. And the answer is they're going to be higher. And the reason for that is really twofold. The supply we've already talked about, and then demand is coming back online. India and China are getting off their self-imposed controlled burns and they're coming back online. And as they come back online, they're going to want to use more oil. And as they use more oil, the price of it will be bid up. And as the price of it is bid up, then anything that involves oil, which is everything, uh, will increase in price. And the government is in a, in a really bad position right now because the government has painted themselves into a corner where they can really only do one of two things. They can fight inflation or they can fight the looming unemployment, which is, which is right around the corner. First time in 20 years, Americans have rolled, have on average increased the balances of their credit cards. Uh, that explains why we can have full employment during a recession, because people checked out of the economy and are living off their credit cards. Well, that's not sustainable forever, just like the government can't continue to issue its own credit card debt, so to speak, treasury bonds and print money forever. But the government did paint itself into a corner where it literally has to choose now between protecting jobs and employment and protecting capital with respect to inflation. Now, now Mark, final question, because we're almost out of time. Do you have an opinion on the recently passed bill, it was recently passed and signed into law, that invested money 
in the semiconductor industry and gave incentives to, to they say, move semiconductor conductor manufacturing to the U.S. so we're not captive to a foreign entity like China for our semiconductors that we use in so many other products like cars. Mark, what was your take on that? Well, I mean, let's not forget how we got here. We got here through the concept of free trade. The concept of free trade has also been known as globalization. The idea being that money can be just as powerful in Indonesia than it is in the United States. And so globalism is saying, okay, let's leverage the comparative advantages of each country. If you have a country that's developing and they have a lot of labor but nothing to do with that labor, that's a great place to open a factory. If you have Americans that now need to make 20 bucks an hour or they won't even work, then you probably don't want low-level manufacturing in the United States. You probably want those people doing pharmaceuticals and things like that, uh, different you know, auto factories, things of that nature, things with high levels of robotics, that sort of a thing. And that, for some reason, nobody wants to talk about what's actually, I think, the biggest threat this country has right now. And it's not climate change. It's what are the simple people going to do in 10 years? And by simple people, I mean the people that, that have IQs below what the military would take, which is 80. So there's about 12 to 13 million of those people in the United States. They're not bad people, but, but in terms of their brain power, they're slow. Well, they're being replaced. And Mark Frost, we'll, we'll end it on that note only because we're out of time, not because we don't want to talk about simple people more, because we would like to. We should talk about it more sometime. But Mark Frost, you made everyone smarter going into the weekend. Thanks for a great appearance, and have a great weekend yourself. And thanks so much to Mark Sobota for his appearance on the show. Fantastic appearance, as usual, Mark and Mark. I'm Lee Strahan. We'll be back next week on the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. Backstory.